have, have you ever misplaced your trust either in someone or something you ever had that experience like where you you placed your trust maybe in a friend uh maybe you misplaced your trust in a significant other and you got backstabbed you got cheated on you got betrayed whatever it is or maybe for you it wasn't really a person maybe for you it was like a politician or a political party and man you just you bought into what they were saying hook line and sinker man this guy or this gal they're going to be the savior of our country or state or city whatever it is or maybe for you it was a company or maybe maybe a sports team you put your trust in them and man they let you down how does that feel it feels terrible doesn't it right when you get let down that feel when you misplace your trust you feel betrayed, you feel wounded, it's discouraging, it can be depressing even. I can remember when I first moved up to North Carolina. So I finished high school in Alabama. My parents moved to the mountains of North Carolina, and so I kind of hung out there for a little while. They moved up, and I, I kind of came up like two months in or something like that. I was going to attend uh, the university, the Western Carolina University. And uh, I didn't have any friends, didn't know anybody up here, and so just kind of kind of met this guy that was around my age who lived here and we started palling around started hanging out he liked shooting pool i like shooting pool so we just kind of started hanging out and knew him for a couple of weeks maybe three weeks and he comes to me with a sob story and he's like man you know i i, I can't i can't pay my rent i just need could you lend me a hundred bucks man just lend me a hundred bucks i get paid next friday and uh, i'll pay you right back i swear man i'm a college kid i'm i'm broke as a joke i don't have much but i you know i i believe this guy he put on a good act so i scrounge together somehow some way i count my quarters and everything and i give him a hundred dollars and friday rolls around and guess who didn't pay me back he didn't and the next friday rolls around and the next friday rolls around and about two months in and we're kind of hanging out and we're going out to eat and he's ordering ordering like the filet mignon and lobster and stuff like that we go to the mall he's buying a hundred dollar pair of sneakers and I'm like bro what's what's the deal i thought you i thought you were gonna pay me back and he had some kind of oh yeah I'm, i just needed new shoes i'll get you back next friday and after a couple of months i realized something he had no intention of ever paying me back right to this day i never got that money back and we're no longer friends right I learned, the hard, I learned the hard way that there's a cost to placing your trust in the wrong thing or the wrong person. And here's the bottom line of the message this morning. Trusting in the wrong thing can be fatal in life, both literally and figuratively. But, and here's the good news, trusting in the right thing can lead to a happy, healthy, fulfilling life. That's how crucial where you put your trust in life actually is. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, the subject of trust. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up, turn it on your device or on your app to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. We are now in our sixth installment of our Ascent series, where we're just kind of systematically working through these 15 psalms from psalm 120 to psalm 134 this book of psalms that was written ultimately as as songs for pilgrims on their journey as they would journey to jerusalem three times a year for the worship festivals that's one of the reasons they're called the psalms of ascent is people would have to travel upwards to jerusalem which sat almost at 3,000 feet above sea level so anywhere in that area you're traveling up to jerusalem thus the psalms of ascent this was 
their road trip soundtrack, their road trip playlist, as it were, for the journey. And I've argued this entire series, and I would argue again today, these are, these are deeply personal psalms and incredibly relevant to us as modern-day pilgrims because we, too, face challenges on our journey through life, don't we? We, too, face danger, steep hills, dark valleys, as Jonathan was talking about earlier, on our journey. We all do, whether you're here as a follower of Jesus or whether you're here as, a, as not a follower of Christ. John Calvin, one of the reformers, called the Psalms a mirror of the soul. A mirror of the soul. I think that's good. The Psalms help us see ourselves clearly for who we are so that we might look up to the one who can do uh, for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so this is incredibly important for us as pilgrims uh, in this journey called life. And so what I want to do now before we jump into Psalm 125, and I'm excited about uh, the truths that we're going to unpack together in this psalm today. But before we do that, let's stop and let's ask for uh, God's help, the Holy Spirit's presence as we enter into uh, his word this morning. God, we, we come to you and, man, it's, it's dark and rainy and nasty and messy outside in the, in the weather. And I would just guess for many of us in the room, many of us watching online right now that that maybe that's the condition of our soul right now. That things just feel chaotic and nasty and messy and wet and kind of gross. God, for those of us who are uh, coming off of a mountaintop even, God, we're, we're all in different places in our spiritual journey. And yet, for all of us, the subject of trust is incredibly important. Because where we place our trust in life will in many ways determine the entire trajectory of our lives. So God, would you help us now as we open these words that were written so long ago, but they're alive and they're active because your spirit speaks them into our hearts in a supernatural way. Would you, would you do that now? Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. We invite you into this space. We invite you into our hearts, into our minds. Please speak to us. Please apply these truths to our lives in such a way that we walk out of here more like your son, Jesus, than when we walked in. And we pray and we ask all of this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Psalm 125, let's read the whole thing together. It's only five verses. Then we'll kind of go back through it, digest it together, point out some truths, and then we'll be done. All right, Psalm 125 on the screens for you. If you don't have a Bible, the psalmist writes this. Those who, and here's that word, here's our theme for the day, right? Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved but abides forever as the mountains surround jerusalem so the lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong do good o lord to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Now, in these five short verses, I think the psalmist gives us five benefits, five truths, but five benefits of trusting in God above 
trusting in other things. So in other words, if you choose to place your highest level of trust in God over this world, over our culture, over other people, over your friends, these are truths that you can expect to experience in life as you walk with Jesus and place your trust in him. So let's look back at verse 1. It says this, those who, and again, there's our, just kind of underline that in your Bible if you can underline it, those who trust, there's that word, trust in the Lord, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And so here's the first benefit to trusting in God. Number one, if you're taking notes, all of these will be on the screens for you. Number one, the first benefit is stability. Stability. And we live in some unstable times, don't we? All you got to do is turn on the news, and you can feel really rocked and really unstable really quickly. And the psalmist says, listen, when you place your trust in God and not in uh, world events, not in political parties, not in your friends, not in your girlfriend, not in your boyfriend, not in social media cloud, not in all any of those things, but when you place your highest trust in God, you are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. Now, if you uh, are like me and you've had the privilege of traveling to the Holy Land, you've walked through Old Jerusalem before, you know what the psalmist is talking about here, right? Mount Zion is the highest point in ancient Jerusalem. It's actually where King David built his citadel. His fortress was located on Mount Zion. Now, if you've never been to the Holy Land, but you obviously, you live in Western North Carolina, maybe for us we would say Mount Mitchell. Those who trust in God are like Mount Mitchell. Now, Mount Mitchell, some of you know, it's the highest point east of the Mississippi, about 6,700 feet above sea level. There's a picture of it right behind me. Many of you have seen that mountain with your own eyes. Some of you have hiked up to it. Some of you have actually maybe summited it. You've hiked on top of it. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. Now, you guys know this. That mountain has been there for eons and will still be there after all of us are long dead and gone. And when the high winds come, guess what it doesn't do? It doesn't move. When tornadoes blow through western North Carolina, they don't destroy Mount Mitchell. Earthquakes come and go, and yet it remains steady, unchanging, unmovable, and unshakable. That's what Psalm 125 is saying. The person who trusts God is like, like Mount Zion, Mount Mitchell. When the earthquakes of life rattle your peace of mind, when the high winds of disappointment beat against your life, when the tornadoes of pain and loss blow through your life, you remain steady, stable, because the one you trust can never be shaken or moved. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes on the screens for you, said this, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. One of our interns may have this tattooed on her arm. I won't tell you who it is, but her name rhymes with Emily Priss, right? You can, you can talk to her later. You probably can't figure out who it is, but what Spurge was saying, what Spurge was saying here is that, listen, guys, even in the midst of trials and challenges in life, these ultimately serve, for those of us who know and trust in Jesus, these ultimately serve as opportunities to go, grow uh, deeper in our faith and experience the stability that God offers. So even the trials, even the, the, the high winds, even the tornadoes, even the disappointments, even the pain, even the, the loss of, that we all experience in this life serve as opportunities for the, those, those of us who know God to grow deeper and experience the stability of a God who is unmovable, unshakable, and we become like a mountain, Mount Zion, Mount Mitchell. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 7, 
highlights the same truth. This will be on the screens for you. Really short. Let's just read through it really quickly. Jesus says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now here's the flip side of the coin in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And Jesus is saying here, listen, guys, if you build your life on me, you'll be unshakable in the storms of life. And you'll experience a, a stability that the, the rest of the culture around you and the rest of the world around you doesn't really get or, or, or can't even really understand. It'll be amazing. You'll have a, a, a really kind of a supernatural kind of stability. But, but if you choose to build your house on the foundation, the sands of this world, on yourself, your own personality, your own preferences, other people, the value systems of our culture, which oftentimes oppose the value system of the kingdom of Jesus. He's warning us here, man, your, your life is gonna be unstable. In fact, eventually, in the, in the end, the, in the final analysis, what you're gonna find out is your life, your world begins to collapse around you. And so I think probably a good, a healthy, a helpful question for all of us to ask, even right now in this moment is, what are you building your life on right now, friend? What are you building your life? Now, I'm not asking you for the Sunday school answer. I know you know the right answer, right? Jesus. I'm not asking you just to give me the auto answer. I mean, really look at your life, examine your life, do a little inventory. What are you building your life on? What's the foundation of your life? What are you trusting in? Because I would guess for many of you, it's something other than Jesus. It's some kind of sandy foundation, whether it's your career or your bank account or romantic relationship or whatever it is. And Jesus loves you enough to say, friend, don't build your house, your life on that sandy soil because it's going to collapse around you. Put your trust in me. Build the house of your life on the firm foundation of who I am, the rock of Jesus. And friend, listen, how you answer that question, whether you're building your house on the rock of Jesus, the sands of this world, how you answer that question will determine really whether your life counts for anything significant in this world or whether you waste your life away entirely. And so that's the first benefit for those of us who placed our highest trust in God is that we will experience his stability even in the storms of life. But that's not all. Those who trust in God also get the benefit, number two, of his security. Now look at verse two again with me as well. Verse two says this, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now, many of you know this, but Jerusalem was built on a mountain, but it was also surrounded by other mountains. Now, as people who are mountain dwellers ourselves, right? We live in the mountains. We, I think we understand this better than most. Uh, my family and I, we, we live about 15 minutes north of here, a little town called, called Weaverville. And to get to our little neighborhood, 
you have to kind of drive up this little hill or this little mountain and it kind of flattens out it actually was an old cow pasture before somebody built a development there and and so you kind of drive up this mountain you get to our neighborhood but even as you walk around our neighborhood you can look up and see mountains surrounding the mountains so we're on a mountain surrounded by mountains and i was walking my dog uh alone one night this evening and I just snapped a couple of pictures because I was meditating on Psalm 125. And I just, I looked down. This is one of our cul-de-sacs. We're on a mountain, but you can see the mountains. And then I turned around. I snapped a picture right behind me. It's a little cow pasture. And there again, there are other mountains. So I'm on a mountain, surrounded by mountains. And I thought, how cool, man. I'm preaching on Psalm 125 about Jerusalem, the city on top of a mountain, surrounded by mountains. And here I am. God has given me a, a visual of this in my very neighborhood. Now, many of you live in neighborhoods just like that. Our apartment complex is just like that. Even if you walk out on our church campus, same thing. We're on a mountain. You got to drive way up here to get here. But you look around, and there are mountains surrounding this mountain. This is the picture that the psalmist is giving us here. He's saying, listen, this is how God surrounds his people. Like a barrier of mountains. He's saying, believer, you are secure from ultimate destruction because God surrounds you like a series of mountains. Now, as, as we've already mentioned multiple times throughout this uh, teaching series, this does not mean that we don't suffer as believers. If you've been a Christian for longer than like a day, you know that, right? Oftentimes, following Jesus brings us more, more trials, it seems like, more tribulations in life. It doesn't mean that we're protected from all trials and tribulations in, in life. This is, not, this is not protection from trials. This is protection from ultimate destruction. We're being separated from God in this life and in eternity. I think uh, the words of Paul Tripp, a great Christian author, are helpful for us here. His quote will be on the screens for you. Tripp writes this. This is good. God's primary goal is not changing our situations and relationships so that we can be happy, but changing us through our situations and relationships so that we will be holy. Isn't that good? That's a completely different, a total shift in perspective. Now, here's the beautiful thing. If you're in Christ this morning like I am, if you've pledged your allegiance to King Jesus, what that means is that even death, even death itself, which the Bible calls the last enemy or the great enemy, even death itself for the believer begins to lose its sting, lose its intimidation factor for us. Tim Keller, uh, who just passed away, went from this life into the presence of Jesus about a week ago, one of my heroes of the faith, said it so beautifully. His quote is on the screens where he, Keller writes this, all death can now do to the Christians is make their lives infinitely better. So we die, we go from this busted up, broken world right into the presence of Jesus and his kingdom. Man, like that, that, that's the worst you can do to me? Send me into the kingdom of my Savior? Man, that gives me a kind of freedom. That makes me a dangerous person in this life. Makes you a dangerous person in this life for the kingdom. George Herbert, the, the great English pastor and poet, says it this way. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Is that awesome? Death used to be an executioner, something to be feared. Now he's just a gardener. See, the Christ follower is secure. Psalm 125 is telling us both in life and in death. No, we don't escape the trials and the pains of this world, but we do experience security within the trial, within the pains of this world. We sing in the rain, as it were. We dance through the pain. Our lot is secure now and forever because 
of Jesus. Now I think in our culture, our time today, living as Americans in 2023, we understand well the need and desire for security in our culture, don't we? I mean, for sure the needs are different from when Psalm 125 were, was written to our time today, but I think we still understand that, that innate desire for security, right? Many of us have alarm systems on our homes. Some of you that don't have it, you have the ADT sign just to make people think you got it, right? Um, it, alarm systems come, come standard on cars now, right? You, the, you hit it, doot, doot, that's, that's your little alarm system. It's security. You don't want anybody taking your car. We have guard dogs, right? We keep baseball bats by our bed just in case we hear a weird noise at 3 o'clock in the morning, right? I can send my wife to go check it out. Go check it out, baby, right? You got this. We can go to the store. We can acquire a, a gun, mace, pepper spray, tasers. We purchase health insurance, home insurance, medical insurance, life insurance, all kinds of security blankets and nets. Governments build entire billion-dollar industries with military and armies and soldiers, right, to, to protect against invading forces. It's the idea of security. And even with all of these things, we discover that most security in the end is a very fragile and fleeting thing, isn't it? And oftentimes as we get older, what we discover is it's really nothing more than an illusion. Right? The robber breaks into your home while you're at work and your guard dog licks them to death as they rob you blind. You pull out the pepper spray on an intruder and it's turned the wrong way and you just smoke yourself in the face, right? I've seen videos of that, right? And then they just rob you blind as you choke on your own pepper spray, right? You, you file a claim with your ridiculously expensive medical insurance only for them to deny you. I'm not bitter about that, y'all, but is there any bigger hoax in America today than the medical insurance industry, right? Can I get an amen? So much for security. Now listen to me. There's nothing wrong with an alarm system in your house or having a guard dog or an insurance policy, but hear this. The real security you need, friend, is of the eternal variety. You need a God who surrounds his people like mountains surround a city, like a fortress. And what Psalm 125 is saying is that when we trust in him in this way, we find that kind of security, eternal security, that you're not going to find in an alarm system or a baseball bat or a guard dog. Our medical insurance policy. This is the kind of security that you need in your life. This is the kind of security that I need in my life. It's found in God, is what he's saying. He continues on in the psalm. Verse 3, he says this. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. Now, let me ask you a question. You can answer this out loud. What's a scepter? You know what a scepter is? like a weird little like stick with a ball on the top right <laughs> the, the 915 somebody said like a wand <laughs> like yeah i guess it is kind of like it's like this weird little stick that kings hold and, and really I, it just it denotes political power i'm not sure that has any like practical purpose or function it just makes you look powerful and, and so what psalm 125 is saying here is that god will protect his people even from evil human leaders even evil people in power now, you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Chris, man, there are evil leaders all over the world in power, and Christians are suffering under their horrible leadership and tyranny even to this day, and you'd be right about that. 
But I think what the psalmist is saying here is that God will ultimately, in an ultimate sense, limit their power and curtail their ability to do harm. And haven't we seen this time and time again throughout history? We think about Hitler. We think about Saddam Hussein. We think about Muammar Gaddafi, these brutal dictators who raped, murdered, and pillaged their own people, right? All met sudden and unexpected, sometimes violent ends. Their reigns were shortened, limited. And history is littered with the stories of evil people having their reigns ended in unexpected ways. And what the psalmist is saying here is God limits evil in this way for the sake of his people. Specifically, he tells us the back half of that verse, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. Meaning that if if a wicked ruler remained for too long, perhaps even the, the righteous would be tempted to fall into their ways to follow them into ruin. And so God in his mercy places, he places limits and boundaries on evil for the sake of his people. And I think this is a good reminder to us as well that regardless of which temporary ruler may reign today, there's another king who reigns forever. And he is good. And he is just. And he protects his people, not from the troubles of this life, but from ultimate destruction. And he is coming back for his people again one day to set everything right, to make everything new, to wipe away every tear. And that's the third benefit for those who trust in God. Not only do we get his stability, not only do we get his security, we also get his protection, his protection. Now what you're gonna notice is the psalmist shifts into a prayer in verse four. So let's join him now as he begins to pray. He says, do good, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. So he opens his prayer asking God to do something that he already wants to do, which, by the way, is a great pattern for us to pray in our own prayer lives. When we pray things that we already know God desires to do, when we pray for things that are in accordance with his will and his purposes and his mission, we know that the answer to those kind of prayers are going to be yes. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, God, would you do good to your sons and your daughter, your people? Would you do good to them? Now listen, for, for those of you in the room who maybe, like, like me, are, are parents, you got kids at home, or at one point you had kids at home, they're grown and gone now, and man, isn't, isn't doing good for your kids one of the, the greatest joys of your life? Isn't it, like as a, as a parent, isn't like doing good things for you, isn't that one of the things that brings you the most pleasure, the most joy in your life? The reality is, is this, man, you, you kind of grow up and for Christmas and your birthday, you start getting things like tube socks and ugly ties and things like that. And so you start to look forward to giving cool things to your kids because you no longer get cool things, right? Of surprising them with that thing for Christmas or their birthday. And then they've been talking about that skateboard or that bicycle or that BB gun or whatever, man, you go and you find it and you wrap it up and you're just like watching them on Christmas morning and they open it up and their eyes light up and whoa, it just makes your soul fly inside of your chest. Like, yes, I did it. I nailed it. This is awesome. They're excited. Like it brings you pleasure to do good to them. That's what good parents do. Good parents do good things for their kids. So listen, church, how much more then does our heavenly father delight to do good to his kids? his sons, his daughters. Listen, guys, 
he's not a reluctant father if you grew up in a church culture where that was the picture that got painted that he's like this angry old dude with a beard riding a rocking chair in the sky scowling he's just not really happy to y'all it's you again that's the wrong picture of our father he's a good father he delights to do good for his sons and his daughters and that's the fourth benefit that we see for those of us who place our ultimate trust in him that we can expect to experience in our lives and that is the goodness of God the goodness of God in a thousand different ways in a million different senses now there's one little problem with this verse and you may have noticed it as I did as we read through it he says God do good to those who are good does that bother you just a little bit that it says do good to those who are good but should because do you know who isn't good you you're not good and neither am i in fact the bible says in romans that we've all fallen short of the glory of god the scripture teaches that we have all missed his mark for our lives now if you're sitting out there in the crowd or watching online you're thinking no nah, man you don't know me pal i'm a i'm a good person i recycle drink out of paper straws at the restaurant I am a good stinking person is that right are you shall we just start with the Ten Commandments have you ever lied ever in your life oh yeah like, like a little white lie but you know like I'm not a liar well have you ever stolen anything even if it were something small oh, yeah like a few times well have you ever coveted something that wasn't yours somebody else's house somebody else's car somebody else's spouse well yeah yeah man but you're getting personal let's not go there have you ever lusted after someone that you weren't married to well now you're now you're just meddling preacher like yeah but i'm not a so so let me get this right so you're telling me that you're a lying coveting thieving adulterer but you're good and we listen, we only got halfway through the Ten Commandments. We could keep going. So you get out of here with that nonsense that you're a good person. You're not good. You came out of the womb rotten, just like I did. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus, by his life, his death, his resurrection, takes all that is not good in you and gives you his righteousness. So that when you and I stand before the Father one day, Christian, he will see the goodness of his son instead of your filth. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so all who are in Jesus this morning can claim this promise that the goodness of God belongs to us. That it's our inheritance as his sons and his daughters. Not because we're so awesome, not because we're good people, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus is awesome on our behalf, and he's earned it on, in our stead. And that's why we worship him instead of ourselves here. That's why we sing songs about Jesus instead of how awesome we are here at New Life. It's all about him. He's the Savior, not us. King David says it this way in Psalm 34. It'll be on the screens for you. David writes this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. What David is saying is, listen, listen, y'all. God is good and he does good. God is good and he does good. 
And those who trust in him, place their highest trust in him, instead of themselves, instead of culture, instead of material wealth, instead of uh, sexual experimentation, instead of whatever it is that you're chasing, all those who place their trust in him can expect to experience his goodness in all sorts of ways throughout their lives. That's a beautiful promise for those of us who know and follow Jesus. But he also gives us a sobering warning here. Look at verse 5. He says, but those... But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Now, he's simply stating here that there's, listen, guys, there's a choice to be made. God isn't going to force you to build your life on him. You can certainly choose another pathway. You can choose to live for yourself. You can choose to live for materialism, career, clout, money, sex, power, you name it. But if you make that choice to build on those sandy grounds, you should know that that choice comes with a certain set of consequences. And in many ways, this is a chilling verse. Because what the psalmist is saying is, guys, listen, we talk about God as being love oftentimes in the church world, and it's true, and we should. He is a good father. He is a loving God. But listen, guys, he is also holy and just. And your sin and my sin must be accounted for. It must be paid for in light of a perfect and holy God. And so I want you to hear me say this. There are two options, two ways that your sin can be atoned for or paid for. Either, number one, option number one, is Jesus pays it for you on the cross. And you accept him, you make him Lord and Savior of your life. And his righteousness is applied to you because of his sacrifice on your behalf. That's the first way that your sin can be paid for. The other option is you pay for it in eternity. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away. Very similar, by the way, to the words of Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew's Gospel, who says in that Gospel, on the last day, that Jesus Jesus goes, hey, on that last day, when they all stand before the judgment throne of my Father... I'm going to take every human being who has ever lived, who has ever walked planet Earth, and I'm going to put them into two groups. I'm going to separate them into two categories. Group number one, he calls the sheep. Group number two, he calls the goats. And Jesus goes, one of those groups I'm going to invite into my kingdom, namely the ones who place their trust in me. And to the other group, he's going to say to them, depart from me because I never knew you. And Jesus goes, many people in this second group are going to protest in that moment. They're going to cry out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these good things in your name? Didn't we feed the hungry? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we, didn't we? In other words, Jesus, we were good people. And he will look at them and he will say, depart from me because I never knew you. Though I pursued you, you chose to build your life on another foundation, and so I'm going to give you in eternity what you chose in life. Listen, y'all, separation from Jesus in life means separation from Jesus in eternity. Do you understand that? Separation from Jesus in life equals separation from Jesus in eternity. And so I want to say this from a place of love this morning. Friend, if you're here, if you're watching online, and you don't yet know Jesus, you haven't surrendered your life to him, I want you to understand, this is a warning you should heed this morning. 
And I want you to know, he cautions you precisely because he cares about you. Can't you see? He wants you to avoid disaster in this life and in the life to come. So if you're not in Christ this morning, let me just urge you, turn to him today. Like King David said, taste and see that he is good. And your life will be secure both now and in eternity. What could be better than that? And he finishes the psalm with a, a short, but I think an important phrase in verse 5. Look, he says this. Peace be upon Israel. Now, church, understand this. We're, we're not Israel, but we are God's people under the new covenant. So I want you to know this. If you're in Christ today, this promise belongs to you. And the message is clear. If you trust God, you can know, and this is the fifth benefit of following him, you can know his peace. And do we not live in a time and an era where people are hungry and thirsty for peace? Man, we live in a time and an era where people are bombarded with the chaos of this world. Psychologists tell us that anxiety is through the roof, depression is through the, the roof, medication is higher than it's ever been before in our culture, in our nation, in our society. People are longing for peace that they can't seem to grasp. It's like a rope of sand. The harder they grip it, the faster it falls away. The message is clear, man. If you want to know this kind of peace, you've got to find it in your Creator. And here's the reality. If you don't place your trust in Jesus Christ, your life is not going to be marked by peace and stability. It's going to be marked by instability, by worry, by anxiety. And that's not God's plan and purpose for you. He has better for you. In the New Testament, Paul puts it this way. Really beautiful words in Philippians 4. Paul writes this. He's writing this, by the way, to Christians. So if you're a Christian in this room or watching online, this is, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, this can be for you if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ. But he, he writes this, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the, there's that word, there's that concept again, there's what we're all chasing in this life. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, I need some of that. How about you? Man, I need that in my life. I need that in my life, and I know you do too. Now this, this of course, is the, the word peace there. It's the concept, the Old Testament concept of shalom, which means complete peace, all-encompassing peace, peace that is not tethered to your circumstances. It supersedes, it swims above the pain and chaos that swirls in your everyday life. Now, how... How do we obtain? That's really the question is, how do we obtain that kind of peace? How, how do we get that? I want that. You want that. I need that. You need that. Everybody you know needs that, wants that, is searching for it. How do you get it? Where do you find it? Very simple. Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.1. On the screen's for you. Paul writes this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, there's that concept again, shalom. We have peace with God through what? Through your career, through money, through sexual gratification, through social media clout, where do you find it? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you find it. So listen, y'all, I want you to understand this. Vertical peace leads to inner peace. I'm going to say that again. Vertical peace with our Creator leads to inner peace. 
No vertical peace through Jesus Christ, no inner peace. So if your life is racked by no inner peace, I would say that's a great place to start. Maybe examine whether or not you actually have vertical peace through Jesus Christ with your creator. I love this quote again from Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, great reminder to us, I think, as we meditate on these promises of 125, he says this, the saints abide forever, but their troubles do not. Now listen, I need you to understand this. You may not feel like a saint this morning, but if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God says you're a saint. That's your identity in him. Now, are you still a sinner? Yes. Am I still a sinner? Yes. When God sees you cleansed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, he sees you and he says, saint, perfect, holy, my son, my daughter, whom I love and delight to do good to. You are a saint, Christian. And I love that quote from Spurgeon. The saints abide forever, but their troubles do not. Your troubles, the things that plague you today, remember, Christian, are temporary. They come and they go. They will not last forever. But your status as a son, daughter, of the king of this universe will last forever, both in this life and in the one to come. And so take heart, church. Take heart, church. Our king has conquered. The victory has already been won. You are safe. You are a secure believer. You are at rest. You are at peace in him. We are like a city surrounded by mountains. So our God surrounds those who love him and place their trust in him. Would you pray with me as we prepare to, to sing and continue in worship? God, we, we come to you in my, uh, my personal confession this morning, and, and I would just guess maybe even our corporate confession together as a family of faith this morning is, is, is so often, Father, we don't place our trust in, in you. Our tendency is to, is to drift, to forget, begin to place our trust in ourselves and our intellect and our ability to like figure things out or placing our trust in other people or in political parties or company, whatever it is, God. Would you forgive us? God, forgive us for the times where we place our trust in someone or something other than you. That is sandy ground, certain to collapse, certain to lead to catastrophe in our lives. If not now, then in the future. So God, would you remind us today to place our trust, to build our lives on the solid rock of the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that we can experience your stability like Mount Zion, like Mount Mitchell, so that we can, we can experience your security, your protection, so that we can walk in your goodness in this life, experience your peace even in the storms of this world. God, help us do that faithfully, more consistently as we trust you. Father, and I pray even for the person who's here sitting down in this room right now, maybe watching online, maybe is going to watch this later on in the week, or maybe, who knows, maybe a year from now. But I pray for the person under the sound of my voice who has not yet placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. God, I pray that you would just give them the courage right now, even in this moment, to cry out to you and say, Father, I confess I'm a sinner. I'm not good compared to you. I'm not good in the face of a perfect and holy God, but you are good. And I see now that you sent Jesus 
to live the perfect life for me that I shouldn't have lived but couldn't live because I'm a sinner and he died to pay for my sins and he rose again to give me freedom and forgiveness in this life and eternity and so God I want to just turn my life over to you I want to repent I want to turn from my sin I want to place my faith and all of my trust in your son Jesus I want to follow him from this day until the day I breathe my last on this planet and see him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth God would you save me would you redeem me I want to know my creator I want vertical peace so that I can experience inner peace God we thank you that all of this is available to all of us through Jesus in whom we pray amen man I want to finish our time before we sing this last song uh, by reciting a prayer a very famous prayer has been recited through the church for many generations called St. Patrick's Breastplate Prayer, okay? Now, I don't know this may be news to some of you guys, but St. Patrick's Day is, is really not about green beer or leprechauns uh, at all. It's actually about a, by a missionary named Patrick who went to a pagan people in Ireland, shared the gospel, gave his life away, and tens of thousands of pagan Irish people gave their lives and were transformed by Jesus Christ. May that be true of our generation and this time and this place. So I want to invite you to stand with me now. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, let's make this our battle cry as we get ready to sing. We're going to recite this together. Make it your prayer. On the count of three, say it with me out loud. One, two, three. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today. And so we arise collectively today, church family. Our king is written. Our future is secure. Let's worship him.